Tremendous Upside features real talk about mental health. Today, we also talk about feeling suicidal. I want you to know that before we get into it. Welcome everyone to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, as we prepare for the much anticipated final between China and the United States. The Women's Soccer World Cup final in 1999 all came down to penalty kicks. You gotta focus on the goalkeepers. Whichever one of them comes up big is gonna make the difference. Everything the team did to get here came down to a kicker and a goalie. One-on-one. 90,000 fans were packed into the Rose Bowl, and everyone was looking at U.S. goalie, Brianna Scary. Ying will go next, the first starter for China to take a penalty kick. The shot. Thanks to Brianna's save, the U.S. won the World Cup. A lot of goalkeeping in general is mentality, um, and I always thought that that was one of my greatest strengths. I mean, I had the ability to focus um, and harness my emotions to such a fine point where, you know, when I went into a game, mentality was a done deal for me. I'm Shamiqua Holsclaw from American Public Media. It's tremendous upside. Real talk with athletes about mental health. Today we got Brianna Scary. She's won two gold medals and that World Cup title. She was the first black woman elected to the National Soccer Hall of Fame. She's featured in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. But those are just highlights the attacking player crashed into the side of my head with her knee that I never saw it coming. Injuries in a lot of athletes' careers. A torn Achilles took me out of the game, but Brianna took a hit to the head, and head injuries are a whole different thing. She'd always been able to rely on her mental strength. She used it in goal, she used it in life, but then it was just gone. And this is the thing that was so um, scary. And I think the thing that made me become an advocate is I knew that I was Brianna Scurry, the the athlete, the the girl who made a penalty kick save and, and world champion. But when I looked in the mirror at my lowest, I didn't see that. We talked about how hard you have to fight to feel like yourself again. To start off, we talked about how she fell in love with soccer in the first place. Age 12, I was the only girl on the boys' team. They put me in the goal, thinking that that was safe, which (laughs) ironically (laughs) is the most dangerous position um, in sport (laughs) as a goalkeeper because you're completely defenseless. You know what I mean? You're getting slammed into left and right, and you're defenseless uh, in so many instances. And so... Um, but I really loved it. Uh, the first season I played, I played goal all the time. And then after that, I finally got onto a girls team and played in the field a little bit, but came back to the goal when I was 16. And so, I mean, I've always loved the position. I realized that I could control the game 
from there. And, uh, you know, I, I really had a passion for it. Yeah, I grew up playing um, basketball with guys. And I remember that mm-hmm. transition of when I went to go play um, with girls. And I was just like, so, so dominant. I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm jumping a little <laughs> bit higher. I'm like a little bit faster. So when did you see, uh, well, when did you think uh, soccer was a career for you? We didn't have a lot of money, so I knew at a young age if I was going to go to college at all, it would probably be a scholarship, you know, completely if I could. And so I had that in mind, you know, in junior high school, and I played four sports in high school. So I played soccer in the in the fall. I played basketball in the in the winter, ran track, and did softball alternately in the spring. And so I was actually notified by 70 colleges by the time I I was a senior in high school. I had a lot of opportunity and I went ahead and and chose soccer because I was All-American goalkeeper, but only an All-State basketball player. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) I went with the uh, lower hanging fruit that had the highest possibilities and ended up with with a really full ride scholarship uh, opportunity to University of Massachusetts Amherst. So you joined the U.S. Uh, women's national team right out of college. What was your experience like practicing and playing with those women for the first time? Um, you know, it was really intriguing because I didn't realize that I was that caliber of goalkeeper until I went to college and my coach, Jim Rudy, at UMass told me my sophomore year that he thought I was good enough to play on the national team. And I said, I didn't even know we had one. And so he he got my interest going in that direction, and I just continued to play as best I could. And my senior year um, in, in college, we were ranked the number one team in the country for goals against average, even above UNC at the time, who was obviously the, the, the number one team in the country year after year. Basically, Anson Dorrance was uh, wearing two hats. Then he was the national team coach in UNC, and um, we played them in the final four, and he he was able to see me play, you know, up close and personal. And we actually lost that game four to one. And I was doubtful about my opportunity to be on that team because I thought that was my chance. And two weeks later, um, my coach called me into the office and said that they'd called me up for the team. And I was shocked, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, because I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, it wasn't about, you know, the result. It was about your attitude, about your attitude about how you came out and played that game. Even though you were clearly outmatched on the pitch, you had an attitude of, you know, I'm not going to give up. And so that's really what got me in there. In my first camp, I was number five goalkeeper in the rankings and and ended up number one um, three months later and starting in the spring of 93. Wow, that's that's awesome. And then you go on and you win um, gold medal with the team at the 96 uh, Olympics um, in Atlanta and then the Women's World Cup in 99. What was it like to suddenly, you know, um, be in the limelight? It was truly amazing. So I, at eight years old, um, I had wanted to be an Olympian and I had seen the Lake Placid 1980 men's ice hockey team. I'm sure you recall them beating the USSR at the time, you know, against all odds. Nobody thought they could win. And I remember watching that game with my mom and dad on the couch and Jim Craig just being outstanding. And I always wanted to be an Olympian. And I literally declared that to my mom and dad who 
um, in their infinite wisdom, didn't poo-poo my my little dream of the eight-year-old girl who wanted to be an Olympian. And so they really nurtured that. And sure enough, I found myself at the exact right time in the exact right place uh, to, to become an Olympian and, and to get on that team and, and actually be able to, you know, contribute to a team that could win, um, win gold. And and boy, did we ever. I mean, we we splashed onto the scene. And, I mean, you recall, I mean, we were, you know, down at uh, at the University of Georgia um, removing the hedges and, and playing in front of 76,000 people. Wow, uh, that's amazing. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it was so hard to comprehend, you know, when you have a dream and it's in your mind and in your heart, and then all of a sudden it unfolds and you find yourself living it. It was truly amazing. So, you know, you do great that Olympics. By the next Olympics, you know, uh, you were no longer a starter in the starting lineup. Mm-hmm. How, how did that feel? Wow. Well, you know what? It's interesting. So I was a starter in 96 and a starter in 99 and made it to the pinnacle of that. And we truly broke through in that 99 World Cup and we became the girls next door that everybody knew. And then... I started drinking my own Kool-Aid, basically, is what happened. Is, you know, I stopped uh, paying attention to what was most important. I was going on these different appearances and different things and all this endorsement contracts and all this attention, and I really got caught up in it. And I wasn't focusing on my fitness or what I was eating or anything like that, and I literally gained 25 pounds in about four or five months. So we had won that. Um, World Cup in July of 99. And by the time we had training camp in early 2000, I came into camp and I was out of shape and overweight and just not committed. And uh, to my coach's credit, you know, she was very disappointed and, you know, basically sat me on the bench. Um, And I can't really Say I blamed her. At the time, I blamed her. <laughs> right, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean I'm going to be on the bench? You know, and by the time the Olympics rolled around, you know, and by May of that year, I was back in shape again, but it was already too late. And I, I didn't understand at the time that I did that to myself. That was self-sabotage. And I realized that later. But at the time, I was just angry party of 47. You know, I was bitter. I was blaming everybody but me and, you know, looking out the window instead of in the mirror. And, uh, you know, I ended up not playing a single minute of that Olympic Games in 2000. And we ended up getting silver by losing to uh, Norway in overtime uh, in that final. Right. So you said that um, you took it. Um, Of course, it was like painful, but mentally, like, you know, you knew it was the ego affecting you. We've all been through that, (laughs) you know. Yes. You know, you get complacent, but there's something that triggers you deep down inside. Like, what was it? I know for me, it's just like, man, you know what? Let me get it back. Like, I hit the ground. You know, I fell down. I got to bounce back. I got to bounce back. How did how did you turn things around? Um, Actually, a reporter had sent me a picture in the mail to sign. And it was a photograph that he had taken or one of his colleagues had taken of me in training camp from 2000. And I could not believe my eyes. It literally was the moment where I looked at that image and I'm like, well, no wonder, you know, your coach didn't believe in you. Look at what you did to yourself. Look at yourself. Because I really couldn't see it. Um, until I saw that photo. And that was the starting point. Right then and there, I decided, you know what, I'm going to 
go back to the drawing board. I'm going to go back to basics. I'm going to, you know, research, you know, fitness. I'm going to research nutrition. I'm going to make an attitude adjustment and decided that I'm going to be the best Brian Ascuri I can be as opposed to just being a little bit better than the person who's backing me up on the bench. And that's really what what turned the tide for me. And I really realized that I need to take full responsibility for what happened because it, it was me. And when I'm at my best, I'm unbeatable. But when I self-sabotage, you know, I'm a dime a dozen. So she recommitted to soccer, and it paid off. She won back her starting role on the national team. They took third in the World Cup in 2003. Then she won another gold medal at the 2004 Olympics. Brianna also played on two different professional teams. But in 2010, a split second in a single game changed everything. We were in Philadelphia playing with uh, the Freedom uh, against the uh, Philadelphia Independence, and I came out for a fairly low routine shot. It was a low ball slightly to my left. It wasn't hit that hard, but hard enough to, to make it to me. And as I was coming out to get it, and the attacking player basically crashed into the side of my head with her knee, and um, you know, right, right into the side of my temple, and I never saw it coming. And so, we both crashed and, and landed on the ground. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I got the ball because as an athlete, you're like, okay, did I get the ball? <laughs> That's right, like, right, definitely. <laughs> did I make the save? <laughs> never mind, my life was going to change forever. Um, did I make the save? And and I did, and and that was like maybe ten minutes left in the half. So I stood up and I was just standing there and the referee is motioning to me like, come on, keeper, come on, keeper, uh, you know, play it. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, it, it was so bizarre. And I kicked it out and I noticed the backs of the jerseys were blurry. The names were blurry. I kept kind of tilting to the left a lot. And, uh, you know, a shot would come in and I would see, you know, several balls. It was almost like it had a like a tail on it. It was so weird and at the halftime, which was like a few minutes later, you know, I come off the field and I'm leaning to the left and the trainer comes out to me and meets me and she's like, looks at me in, in the eye and says, are you okay? And I said, no, I, I am not. And that's the last game I played. That was uh, April 2010. And I remember walking up the embankment back to the locker room and just knowing that something was really wrong. I mean, I knew, and I wasn't going to be, you know, coy about it. Oh, I'm okay, you know, rub some dirt on it, give me some water, I'm okay. I knew I was not okay. And um, as time went on, you know, symptoms started to develop. I, I had a sensitivity uh, to light and sound. I, I felt a little bit nauseous. I had pain in the location where she hit me, but also, you know, behind my left ear as well. And all these different um, issues. I've had concussions in in the past, obviously, playing with the national team. I mean, I had Abby Wambach fall on my head once. I mean, that's enough to oh, concuss wow. anyone. definitely. <laughs> She's a big girl. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that was only like a day, and, and this one was very different. And, and as time went on, it just wasn't getting any better. And so I went on the IR for the week, and then, uh, you know, all of a sudden I was on the 15-day and the 30-day and the 60-day, and then... It just wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And um, then it was 
season-ending and then career-ending. And I was 38 years old, so, you know, at the time I thought, you know, I'm disappointed and, and, and heartbroken that I'm done playing this way, that this is how it ends. But I was like, okay, you know, I, I did some cool stuff and I really can't complain and and I was going to consider retiring soon anyway, but I just wasn't myself anymore. I felt literally disconnected. There's a there's a feeling, and you know this as an athlete, where you, you know your body in a way that is almost, uh, you know, the energy of it. Like yes. you can feel that you're connected to your abilities and, and you're the, the composer of what you're doing. This hit disconnected me from all of that. And it was almost like I lost who I was from it because a concussion affects everything, you know, in your, in your life. Unlike a, you know, a knee injury or a shoulder injury where it's just that part of your body. But when you get a hit to the head, it's everything that's different. And that was really hard for me. Wow. So obviously, you know, here you are, you're basically going through two transitions. So, you know, you, you're losing yourself, like you said, because of the head injury. And also, you know, soccer's over. So you, yes. you're thinking that whole, you know, what am I going to do next? And mm-hmm. I I know from experiencing it at 33, I, uh, my career was ended due to an Achilles um, tear. I ruptured my um, Achilles. And we don't think about like all the community stuff we've done, how people just love us, you know, how, you know, they they want, hey, do you want to coach? Do you want to do X, Y, and Z TV, all that stuff? But in your head, you're so disconnected. You're telling yourself, oh my God, what am I going to do next? And all that, for me personally, a lot of self-doubt crept in and it really impacted my, my mental health. So I'm sure... It did the same for you, like in two ways, you know, the head injury and the transition piece of, as, as far as it relates to your career. It definitely did. Um, it, was, it was really difficult because the emotional side, when it comes to like head injury, concussion, um, people talk about the physical symptoms, they talk about cognitive issues, but the emotional part of it. So I, all of a sudden I had anxiety and, and I was in it, unable to focus, you know, I could focus with 90,000 people watching me on a soccer pitch and, you know, in a World Cup final, I could focus on a panel of the ball, but I couldn't focus at all anymore. And I I felt like I couldn't learn at the time, which is like so bizarre. And then I had this depression issues and anxiety and all these things that were very foreign to me. It was almost like I was in someone else's body Mm -hmm. because all these things that were happening were just not like me. And, And essentially what happened was I came to the point where I understood that part of this might be because of my transition. You know, a little bit of this might be because I'm depressed about that. But as time went on, I realized it was so much more than that. It took me a long time to understand that the emotional issues were connected to the hit as opposed to my transition. And once I realized that, then I was very concerned about getting back to me. Um, I saw many doctors was misdiagnosed and, you know, a lot of people were saying, you know, you look fine. You know, you hear that all the time, you know, with doctors, they were like, well, you know, you, you should be okay by now. I'm like, that doesn't really help me because I don't feel okay. And I know I'm not, and I'm not going to settle for this current existence that I was living. You know, I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was, you know, sad. I, I just felt like I was disappearing. And this is the thing that was so um, scary and I think the thing that made me become an advocate is I knew that I was Brianna Scurry, the, the, the athlete, the, the, the girl who 
made a penalty kick save and, and world champion. But when I looked in the mirror at my lowest, I didn't see that at all. And I knew it was me, but I was like, was that me? And it's so bizarre and it's so lonely and hard to explain how I could possibly feel that way. And after all I had done. Right. And that's the thing about mental illness and, and, and you know, head injuries that it, it your your view of yourself shifts and in, pe- in ways that people can't possibly understand. Yeah, and a, and a lot of people, um, you know, end up like suffering um, and, and, and silence. It's almost like you're, you're two people. For me, it was like in the public, I could be that person everybody liked and smile and, you know, kind of rolling in a, a scripted sort of way. But when I went home, it, it, was, it was a struggle. Like I, I couldn't cut my mind off. I'm, I'm depressed all the time, having suicidal um, ideations. But what, what you went through in the middle of all this, you were hired by ESPN as a commentator for the 2011 Women's World Cup. What was that experience like um, for you? It actually was exactly what you just said, but two, two different people. So I was there in, in Germany for the 2011 World Cup for 30 days. And leading up to that, that year was by far and easily the worst year of my life. You know, I would go home every day and cry and cry and cry. I would go out to the ocean and just sit there and and pray for something to help me. And I did that for months and months, and I finally went to the World Cup, and I did the exact same thing. I would, you know, do the announcing and, and the commentary with the goalkeeping and everything from the tournament, and I would go back to my room and I would cry and cry and cry because I didn't feel like I could even, it was hard for me to even learn, you know, the tendencies and the, the key players for these different teams. I mean, thank goodness I understood and I knew the, the women's, you know, the USA women's team, but all their opponents and all these other games and the goalkeepers, like it was all like so hard for me to even remember the things I wanted to say. I just felt like, I was under siege. Um, my my own mind was playing tricks on me and betraying me. And and the thing is, is my mental ability and my mental toughness for so long was the number one weapon that I had that got me to where I was. You know, with with national team and and playing soccer and to the pinnacle of the of the mountain. That's what got me there, and that's exactly what was betraying me at that point. And it was so so bizarre to even understand it. Hold tight through the break. Tremendous Upside is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. We have real conversations about mental health on this show. That's so important to do because not enough people are talking about this stuff, and it's serious. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Like what to say or not to say. And stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. 
Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. We're back. Brianna Scurry had a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. She was fighting to get workers' comp. You might not know this. Professional athletes can get workers' comp if they're hurt in a game. It was a really dark time for Brianna. Her career was over. She got a studio apartment in New Jersey. She isolated herself. Literally, what got me through that was two things. One was I made a decision, you know, in late 2011 that I would get up every day and at the least go for a walk. That was my main goal every day, go for a walk. And during the times when it was really bad, you know, when I was, you know, having thoughts of ending my life, what saved me was the the thought that somebody would have to tell my mom about what happened and I could not bear that. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And she had real uh, issues with dementia and Alzheimer's at that point. And so our conversations were um, very similar every time we had them because she was kind of stuck in the time frame of when I played. So she didn't understand that I wasn't playing anymore. In her mind, I was still playing. And, you know, that's just how the, the disease can basically stick you in one part of the life. And so that's what we talk about. We talk about that. And just her being there, you know, available to talk to me, kept me going. And even if she wouldn't have maybe understood that her daughter was gone, there was no way I was going to let that happen. At this point, it was over three years since her injury. Brianna was just barely hanging on. Then she met Kevin Crutchfield, a neurologist in Baltimore. He had worked with pro athletes and concussions. I had these very specific pains that caused my headache behind my left ear. And it was always the exact same pain every day, right? So there was consistency with that. And, and I told Dr. Crutchfield this. And the, the, the interesting thing about him was he'd played soccer in the past. And so when I came in to see him, he knew me as the girl who made the penalty kick save. And so the person that walked in the door in front of him, he knew I was broken on first sight. He's like, you are in trouble, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, because he could tell. He could see I was broken. And he touched the back of my head where the the inflammation and the damage was behind my left ear. And I literally almost kicked him because <laughs> wow. it hurt so bad. And I had no idea. And he's like, okay, yeah. And he decided that I would try the initial um, shots to see if this occipital nerve release might work for me. And sure enough, I responded well to that. And then he diagnosed me with, you know, a basket of things. But that was one of the things that he thought if we could fix the location of the headaches and we get the headaches under control, then we can do everything else after. And so he suggested I get that surgery, which at the time was was very experimental. And I was willing to do it because at that point I was willing to do whatever I had to do. And he was willing to help me. And I knew, I knew he was right. I just knew it. I felt it in my heart. 
Wow, that's 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 powerful because you know when you think about experimental, um, mm-hmm. it's like I, you've been through this tough journey already. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I don't. For me, I would have been like, ah, I don't know. But when you look at the other <laughs> side of things, you're like, oh man, this is a this is a chance. There, there's hope. Mm-hmm. All right, you have the surgery. What was life like after? What happened after surgery? So before I had the surgery done. Um, the insurance company was really, you know, hemming and hawing about paying for anything and about allowing me to have the procedure done. And in that time, you know, I met Chris Zizos, who owned a PR firm who could potentially help get the insurance company to do the right thing. And so she was helping me get through this process and get the insurance company on board. And eventually I did have the surgery. And because she's in PR, what she did was she told the Washington Post to, to do a story. And, and during this time when I was trying to get this procedure done, I wanted to become an advocate for concussions and, and head injuries because, you know, in the past, the only faces you saw of concussion and TBI were men's football players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to be a, a face of it because I read that women's soccer players had a ton of Concussions, you know, 50% of of high-level female soccer players have a concussion at some point in their career. And I needed to make my three years of hell mean something. And I knew I could do that through advocacy. So after we did this procedure, the Washington Post did this huge article on me after following me around for three weeks before this procedure, during it, and after. And when I was laying on that recovery uh, bed... And I opened my eyes, I knew immediately it had worked because I did not have that feeling anymore. And I was so happy and grateful, and I knew I was finally on my way. By the way, the PR woman who got her article in the Washington Post, they're married now. In 2014, you testified uh, before Congress about the injury and how sports organizations can help prevent the same thing from happening to um, to other athletes. What was your the message you had for them? My message was if this odyssey that I went through with being misdiagnosed and and shuffled around and you know the delays because an insurance company didn't want to believe that that's the reason why I needed this done and that I was just going to be that way forever. If that can happen to me and it be that complicated as it got and hard and difficult, then I can only imagine how it might be for your U16 girl who's high level playing, you know, in Minnesota or Michigan or Florida who suffers a head injury and how is she supposed to be able to navigate and get the proper care and this and that. And so I I wanted there to be some kind of understanding of the dangers of TBI, of process and how to assess it in a proper way. And I really wanted doctors to understand that it's not okay to just tell someone that they're fine when they, they feel they're not. Um, so I wanted a lot of different things. I actually wanted the moon and the and the sun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted it now. Right, <laughs> you know? right. So I, you know, I laid it all out, you know. Um, and since then, there's been incredible progress. Um, and, I'm, and I'm grateful to have been a part of that. 
and the the most profound thing that has occurred for me in the last few years is I am now grateful for the head injury. And that took a long time to get there. And that was an emotional maturity that I did not have at the time, because when you're in it, you can't see it. But now that I'm out, I can look back and say, you know what, a lot of things that are positive in my life sprang from that. And, you know, I'm grateful every day for all the amazing I have in my life now, which is so far above and beyond anything I could have thought I would have before my hit, um, when I was in quote unquote my right mind, I didn't think that I could have the life that I have now. And I think that the one thing I've learned is you have to be grateful for all of it. If you can extract the lesson from the event and truly look at it in its entirety, you can find some salvation, even in the worst situation. And I go on and I am trying to hold a standard of helping people and, and being someone who, you know, is a great example. Because it's not always obvious now, you know, when you're playing sport, you, it's very easy to see that you're, you have excellence, that you're inspiring people, but it's not as easy to do um, off the pitch or off the court or field. So I'm hoping that I'm I'm able to do that, and that's that's really why I am so open about talking about the worst of it, because people need to know both sides. Brianna Scurry's injury ended her career. It sent her down a path where she considered taking her life, but she fought for herself, and she survived. We need to keep talking about mental health. That's what this show is about. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with Stanley Cup champion, Theo Fleury. We all know about addiction, and uh, once you cross the line, you know, your addiction never gets better. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and then it's a pretty fast trip to the bottom of the gutter, and, you know, that's where I ended up. Tremendous Upside is a production of American Public Media. I'm your host, Shamiqua Hostclaw. John Moe created the show. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. Producers include Chrissy Pease, Tracy Mumford, and Christina Lopez. Our recording engineer is Garrett Lang. John Miller mixed this episode. Our theme song is by Riley Mackin. Tremendous Upside is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say or not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Again, if you or someone you know needs someone to talk to, trained volunteers are available. You can text the word HOME to 741-741 or call 1-800-273-TALK. Anytime of the day, someone's there and it's free. <laughs>